As Luke tells you the story of what happens next, the scene shifts to Peter, and it invites us to consider as believers a question such as, will I continue following Christ because he is Christ, the living God, or am I with him as long as things are going as I thought they should? Because if you consider Peter's mindset, things in the Garden of Gethsemane take a turn, and he can face the kinds of temptations we would all face, feeling quite confident about the direction things are heading and the Lord who is with us, as long as everything seems to be lockstep with what we thought would happen. Peter draws his sword, he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus says, no more of this. And I suggested to you this morning that we should connect that episode in the Garden of Gethsemane with this high priest courtyard scene. It's often clear to us that in this courtyard scene, Peter's denying of Christ reveals his fear, cowardice, a number of words that fit the scene. But immediately prior to this, it was not cowardice uh, or anything like that that was on display in the garden. But instead, a boldness, even beyond what might even been reasonable for Peter to display, drawing his sword, ready to start in combat against an armed, arresting crowd that's come for Jesus. But in Peter's mind, and no doubt representing the, the disciples as a whole, a disillusionment begins to set in in the most practical sense. They have heard him say, the Son of Man must be betrayed, and he must be delivered up, and he's going to suffer and die, and then on the third day rise again. But for those events now to be unfolding, to begin living and experiencing the Christ taken from them, this was not something easy to process at all. And it's easy for us to look in hindsight at the things that we know these were leading toward, the victorious resurrection from the dead, ultimately, where he is triumphant over death and all of his enemies. He's vindicated before God, but that is not where Peter is in the high priest's courtyard. Peter, in his mind, is facing the disillusionment of what he thought would be, and no doubt consumed by fear, concern, Rather than self-assurance and confidence, there is doubtfulness, fear that is consuming him. We could consider Gethsemane and the courtyard to be a place of sifting. Jesus told him in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, the rooster won't crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter has heard an explicit prophecy. This is not Jesus vaguely saying, Peter, at some point, things are going to be difficult for you. I'm a prophet. Uh, just to remark here, he says, before this night ends, you will deny me not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster crows that you know me. And Peter just processing that is thinking, that's unthinkable, Jesus. And what I know about myself, he's thinking, oh, there's no way I would do that. But Jesus, knowing Peter better than Peter knows Peter, is trying to help Peter walk humbly 
and not with a kind of bravado that he comes into the Garden of Gethsemane with, even amidst all of his sleepiness, his bravado is provoked by the, by the arriving, arresting crowd. Jesus has been moved from Gethsemane and the disciples have spread. What Matthew and Mark tell us, which Luke doesn't report here, is that when they begin to arrest Jesus, the flock of the disciples disperse quickly. The shepherd has been struck and the sheep fall away or scatter. There is this scattering of the sheep. And in the midst of all of this, Peter is being sifted. Just as Jesus predicted, you're watching now the sifting of Peter as he could not stay wakeful in the garden to pray that he might not enter into temptation. And now when temptation is upon him to deny Christ, he enters right into it and is overcome. We watch here the warning of Christ, which was not heeded by Peter, and now the failure of Peter in the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus is not the only one on trial then. Peter is on trial. Now, he's not inside with some of the most important officers that have brought in Jesus, but Peter's on the outside, asked some questions to bear witness. Bear witness about who he is and who he's associated with. And Peter gives false testimony. While Jesus is on trial demonstrating faithfulness and truth, Peter is in the courtyard filled with fear and trembling. While Jesus persevered with resolve and commitment to the will of God, Peter is in the courtyard and his unfaithfulness is clear. You will deny me three times this very night before the rooster crows, Jesus said. Peter said in Mark 14, 31, I will not deny you. So Jesus has said what's going to happen and Peter says, that won't happen. Which is... Which is also a display of, of a high degree of self-confidence that Jesus can say what's going to happen and Peter say that's not going to happen. And of course, it's Peter's humbling pride, humbled pride that we see in the courtyard. In verses 54 to 55, let's look together at the arrival at the courtyard itself. Then they seized him and led him away. Just marking what these pronouns refer to, the they is the temple guards, the soldiers from the Romans, any of those that were lent, as well as Pharisees, chief priests, this uh, motley crew of characters marching into the Garden of Gethsemane. They seized him and led him away. This is after Jesus heals the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. This is after he told his disciples, no more of this for Peter to put away the sword and the other one not to be drawn at all. They seized Jesus. And at this moment, the other gospels tell us the disciples leave. They begin to lead Jesus away. So now this crowd, this glowing group that's been in the dark heading to Gethsemane has done what they've needed in the cover of night. And now they're moving backward with Jesus and they're heading to the high priest's house. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four gospels give us three phases of Jewish interrogation. Three phases of Jewish interrogation. Only John's gospel gives you phase one. He's taken to Annas. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He's a former high priest, but he's not the current one. He's still alive. Rome had a strong influence on who the high priests were, and they did not have to be high priests who died to be replaced. Sometimes they were replaced while they were alive. And this is the case with a man named Annas. 
And they go to his home first, likely in deference to his widely regarded position and past role in Jewish life. And no doubt because of renown that he still possessed, they bring Jesus there, John 18, 13, a brief encounter with Annas. There's no formal judgment that's announced there. That's going to be more pronounced in phase two and phase three. Phase two is a meeting with Caiaphas. This seems to be what we notice in in, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A meeting with Caiaphas, and then finally phase three, an assembly of the Sanhedrin, which is the high court of Judaism. They couldn't exact the death penalty. They couldn't execute someone, but they could certainly deliberate as a judicial body over any violations against the Jewish law, and they could state some kind of formal verdict of what they thought should happen. So you have a brief meeting with Annas. A meeting with Caiaphas, the reigning high priest, and then a more formal, or I should say middle of the night meeting with whoever could gather a quorum of the Sanhedrin phase three. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give you those three Jewish phases. And from that point, there are three Roman phases. We'll deal with those on a later date. So the three phases of the Jewish trials, we'll look at um, phase two, having already implied phase one from John. When they arrived, they come into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance. I wonder if this surprises you. The disciples had scattered and Peter's going just far enough to see where the group moves. And it says he began to follow at a distance. This is, this is not a circumstance where Peter would want to say, well, I'm going to cross over with you guys. In fact, I'll hold one of the torches. Let's just walk together. This is Peter very sheepish about what's just happened. He has felt humiliated, no doubt, in the garden, confused by the actions of Jesus, though Jesus has earlier predicted what happens. Peter's going to see where this all leads. That's probably what's on his mind. He's following at a distance because this is Jesus. And he's being sifted, whether he realizes it or not. It tells us in verse 55 that when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. If this is occurring in 33 AD, you're dealing with uh, the month of April. And in 33 AD, even in the evenings of uh, this area in Jerusalem, it would be chilly at night. And uh, we would not be surprised that spring nights in Jerusalem would have a warm fire for people to enjoy. Um, there is a fire kindled in the middle of the courtyard in the middle of the night. There's nothing normal about this. Seems kind of odd, sketchy even, suspicious. In the middle of the courtyard, there is a group that's gathered. And part of these that would be gathered at the courtyard of the high priest includes the arresting crowd that's traveled from Gethsemane. In other words, it's not like Jerusalem's awake in the middle of the night and you've got all these people stopping by the high priest's courtyard. The people, in other words, who are at the high priest's courtyard are aware to some degree of what's been happening. They kindled a fire there and they sat down and Peter sat down among them. Now, friends, there is an element of risk to that. This is not the safest place to be. So even while we notice the unfaithfulness of Peter and what comes, there is a a reality that we need to see that none of the other disciples are there. He's followed. So he followed at a distance and around the fire they are. According to Matthew 26, 58, he wanted to see the outcome of the event. Matthew 26, 58 reads this way. Get to the right page here. Matthew 26, 58. 
Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end, which means inside the courtyard among people where it may be risky to be around wanting to know where all of this is going to lead. Verses 54 and 55 then set the scene. And then from verses 56 through 60, we, we watch a series of denials, the famous three denials of Peter, 56 through verse 60. And denial number one is prompted by a servant girl. It says in verse 56 that a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said this man also was with him. Now, I find this scene somewhat humorous prior to his denial, because at this moment, here's this person looking over at him. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you thought, I think I know that person. And every time they look over, you're just sort of staring at them, trying to figure out where you place them, right? And maybe it's kind of awkward. They're looking at you, looking at them. They're not sure what to make of you, nor you of them. But uh, you're just thinking, I, you know, I, can, I know someone. I know this. And, and this, this girl, this young servant girl, sees him in the firelight. He is in a place where he would be more visible than is perhaps safe at this moment. Well, you know, it's cold and and there are groups of people there. And so maybe he will just kind of fit in. It seems to be what Peter's hoping. Maybe I will just blend in. And once the people in the courtyard start saying, here's how you stand out. He doesn't want to stand out like that. He just wants to blend in and not stand out as a disciple of Jesus. He's afraid. In verse 56, she's looking closely at him. And I just imagine her just sort of leaning forward and really getting up into his face and then saying, this man, now she's talking to others. This man also was with him. And no one has to even name the him. Everybody knows it's Jesus. And she's saying to other people, this one was with him. The danger here is the intimidation not from this servant girl, but from others in the group outnumbering Peter and certainly outnumbering Peter in hostility, they would be looking at him to agree with this servant girl. So she's putting him in an awkward position. Yes, we can agree with that. He's certainly in an awkward position. Now, where has she seen him earlier? Well, it doesn't tell us. Here's where I saw him. And I think it's the same guy. So let me suggest to you a couple possibilities. Number one, maybe she had been earlier that week in the temple. In the light of day, Jesus had been teaching with his disciples. And people in Jerusalem go to the temple. The the people of the high priest's household, their servants, their guards, all of these people would be of the business of the week. And I, I assure you that actions at the temple would interest all of them. And if she has been day by day with Jesus and his entourage of the 12, then there is an imprinting visibly on the face of this, uh, in the mind of this girl, that he belongs with that group. It could also be that she was among those in Gethsemane who've recently returned to this courtyard. If she's a servant of the high priest, and we know that chief priests and others like the servant of the high priest Malchus have gone. Perhaps others from the high priest's household have been in that garden of Gethsemane and she saw him just minutes earlier. So she's recently seen him. She's maybe not 100% sure, but it sure looks like that's the guy that was with him. 
Now, Peter immediately denies it. He denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. That is a fascinating statement. It's a fascinating statement because not only is it a denial of three that are going to be given to us, the first of several, I do not know him is a striking thing to say for somebody who's in the courtyard of the high priest in the middle of the night. In fact, an appropriate retort from her ought to have been, then why on earth are you here? What do you mean you don't know him? If you're not one of us and you don't know him, how is it that in the middle of a Friday morning hours, you've shown up in the courtyard around the high, on the high priest's courtyard around this fire with those of us? Woman, I don't know him. He's trying to blend in. Imagine not just this woman staring at him. Other people are staring now, leaning in, looking closely, looking at the firelight reflecting off of his face. Have we seen that guy before? Oh, it must have been incredibly concerning. But he has to play it cool if fear is what's going to drive him. Because if he panics at this moment, if he's like, oh, yes, I'm with him, or, oh, you know, and gets up to run away, who knows what he might provoke next. So if someone is watching him, it must have taken an incredible amount of self-control and calm to say, I don't know him. But then I wondered if he even heard himself. Did I just say, did I just say out loud, I don't know him? Or if he had any thought that Jesus's prediction earlier had any chance of coming true. And if he was ever beginning to connect to the dots before the rooster crowed, it seems that at this moment he's caught so overwhelmed by circumstances, he's not connecting the dots until the rooster crows. Well, there is a second denial in verse 58. This second denial is all in this verse. And then the third denial in verses 59 and 60. Verse 58 says, a little later, someone else saw him. And said, you also are one of them. A little later, you also are one of them. And Peter says, man, I am not. The two denials are interesting because first in verse 57, I do not know him. That's a distancing from Jesus. And in verse 58, you are one of them. That's a reference to the group, the disciples. Peter is distancing himself from Jesus and the disciples. I don't, know the, I don't know him. Oh, you're one of them. I am not one of them. I'm not one of them who was with him. I'm not with them. I don't know him. Why are you here? You wonder if they're asking that question in their own minds or if that's something just not recorded by the gospel writer. Then how did you come to be outside the high priest's courtyard around this fire? Because he's not a chief priest. He's not a temple guard. He doesn't work for the high priest. He's not a Roman soldier. He's not a Pharisee. And he starts to sound like somebody who's not from this area. This is where the third denial is interesting. It says in verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. An hour passes, and if you're Peter, you might think, okay, enough, like, I've, out, I've outlasted this, okay? I've had, I've had to deal with her, and I've had to deal with him, and these questions that are coming at me, but every minute that passes, he must be thinking to himself, surely I'm in the clear. 
After all, these aren't just, you know, uh, minutes, but an hour that goes by after an interval of about an hour, all of a sudden it comes up again. I thought I was past this. Certainly. Oh, that's not a good word for anybody to use where there was previous doubt or questions. Here is, here is an assurance statement from somebody. He's, this is another way of saying, I guarantee you, this man was also with him. Which means not only does he know Jesus, he's also with those disciples, both of which Peter has denied. And this person says, most certainly he was with Jesus, for he too is a Galilean. Why is that phrase important? Because as they have heard Peter talk, as can be the case for people who are not from a region and show up to that region, you might listen uh, to someone speak where you've traveled and they might listen to you and you both uh, can agree that because of the way you're pronouncing things and the accent on you that neither, neither of us are from each other's places. You know, you're here and I'm from over here and we both recognize that fact. And a Galilean would not sound like somebody from Jerusalem. That means... This man doesn't even live around here. Why is he at the high priest's courtyard in the middle of the night around a fire with soldiers, high priest servants, chief priests, and on and on? So after an interval of an hour, this certainty is, is proclaimed. And according to John 18, 26, it's even more interesting. John 18, 26, um, there is some more identification of this figure. John 18, 26 says, One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And then Peter again denied it. So in John 18, 26, we find that this third speaker, certainly this man was with him. How does he know? Because Peter cut the ear off of his relative. They're working for the high priest and there's a family member in the garden. He's like, I was there in that garden. I saw you. I saw you. So his accent stands out. He's been identified. And even after more than an hour, certainty is being proclaimed. Now, Peter says in verse 60, man, I do not know what you are talking about. The content of these denials is interesting. I don't know him. I'm not with them. I don't know what you're talking about. All of these refusals to consider the question. Sounds pretty defensive to me. What's he got to hide, right? I mean, I don't think it's helping his case that he seems to be getting increasingly worked up. And according to Mark 14, he begins to, to deny this with such confidence and insistence that he starts bringing down curses upon himself. And I don't mean profanity. I mean, he is speaking that God bring a curse upon him if he's lying. Oh, my goodness. What a horrifying moment for Peter to so be driven by fear that he is invoking the judgment of God upon himself if he's telling a lie. And of course, we know he is lying to all these around the fire. He is lying to them. And he's speaking with such certainty and confidence. He's saying, I swear, may God strike me dead. May a curse be upon my head. Language like this. We could imagine him saying, may I be accursed if I actually know Jesus. Or may a judgment of God fall upon me and the woes of judgment be upon me if I'm actually one of those disciples. When he is indeed those very things. One who knows Jesus and one of the disciples. 
In verse 60, what all the other Gospels report is that after these three denials, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The rooster crowed. Jesus had specified this. This detail matters in, in Luke twenty two thirty four. 34. The rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Denying that you know me, which Peter has done. And the rooster crowing is this remarkable detail showing the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus' words. The insight and prediction of what he has in Peter's individual future. Not only is Jesus in absolute control, he knows not only what's in store for him, he knows what's in store for his disciples. He knows what's in store for us. And he says to Peter and all of his disciples, Satan desires to have you, to sift you like wheat. Peter here is being sifted and the rooster crows to climax this period of sifting. And then verse 61 verse sixty-one is a verse only Luke tells us. The first part of the phrase, that is. The first part of the verse. And I really want us to pay attention to this moment. Verse 61 says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The setup of the high priest's house was probably more than one level to where anyone in the upper could look at someone in the lower region. It could also be that Jesus was being moved from one room to the other and at the moment of the rooster's crowing was at the absolute right place and was able to see him. One of those two constructions seems to be likely because Peter's outside and Jesus is inside. So it's one of those, some sort of open area where Peter sees Jesus or Jesus looking down. But it says the Lord turned and every time the Lord turns in the gospel of Luke, there's some kind of decisive moment over and over again. Seven times in the gospel of Luke, there's a reference that Jesus turned. This occasion of Jesus turning is also in a context of significance. What's been going on? Well, Peter has been denying Jesus. And it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. We do get a sense in the other gospels of Peter's remembrance, but here Luke seems to help us see it's prompted by this fixed gaze that Peter and Jesus have at this moment of denial. Remembering the word of the Lord, he remembered the word of the Lord, the text tells us. That's because Jesus had earlier told him this, right? So when we're told in verse 61, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord or the word of the Lord, it's that threefold denial that Peter has not had on the forefront of his mind, but should have had on the forefront of his mind. One writer puts it this way, I've often wondered How Jesus looked when he made eye contact with Peter. Did his face burn with wrath? Or was it as calm as the sound of God walking through the garden after his first image bearers had believed a lie? Because it doesn't tell us what Peter saw when he saw the Lord. It tells us he saw the Lord, the Lord looked at Peter, and then Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. 
Jesus' remarkable compassion on display leads me to lean in a certain way. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter goes to draw his sword and Jesus says no more of this, he heals Malchus, the servant of the high priest. He even welcomes the approach of Judas, who will betray him with a kiss. Knowing Peter's denials and Judas's betrayal, Jesus has washed the, defeat, the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13. The surprising compassion of Jesus to these ailing and flailing disciples has been on abundant display, even in periods where their, their questions and their skepticism and their uh, bombastic claims about who's going to sit on the right and left of him in the kingdom and Jesus has been long-suffering with them. So I don't think that when Jesus looks at Peter and when Peter sees Jesus, that it's a look of, how could you, you pathetic loser? There are all kinds of looks that people can give in different circumstances. You might think of uh, talking with parents from time to time about uh, the look the look they give their, their child when they the, a look that speaks words, you know. It's a, look, it's a look that comes with some content. It's a look that you better stop that. You better stop that right now. That, that look that's there. And, and you can imagine, on a, on a, just by that analogy, on a trumped-up scale here, the devastation of Peter realizing and remembering the saying of the Lord. What is Jesus' look to him? Is it a look of just withering disappointment and disgust? If Jesus could speak with that look, he would say, you disgust me, Peter. You absolute disappointment. I had such expectations for you. And then you go and you do this. I don't think that look would communicate those things. I think this is a look that would be in keeping with what Jesus had told Peter in Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. I have prayed for you, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And I think the only reason Peter turns again is the Lord turned and looked at Peter. In other words, Jesus is not looking at Peter and then shaking his head and turning from him as if this is the line, Peter. There's no coming back from this. The reason there is coming back, even from this, in the, in the almost in the Garden of Gethsemane, but that too, in the courtyard of the high priest, is because Jesus looks at Peter with a heart of mercy and compassion, and that's the only thing that will melt a sinner. You need to reflect on that look of Jesus. How does Jesus look at his people when we fail? And you need to think about this because the devil will say to you, you have once again failed. God absolutely despises you. But God does not despise you. It would be a lie from the evil one to say it's Jesus' hand-wringing, disgusting look toward his people that we would see if we were to peer behind the veil. I think here we are seeing a look that melts Peter, which is part of Jesus' heart already consistently toward Peter, a heart of mercy and compassion. And when Peter looks to Jesus, he once again sees his merciful, compassionate Lord, and Peter realizes, I am denying the that I know him? 
If anyone we ought to align ourselves with, it's to confess him, not to deny him. We should reflect on this look. A look of forgiveness and encouragement. Jesus is going to pray on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If we were to say that the look here had to be one of wrath and burning indignation and rebuke, then that would be out of step with the way Jesus has treated his enemies and even his own disciples prior to this. It would have to require us to see a scene out of step with every other display of Jesus's compassion in those surprising moments. We might think, what does Peter deserve? Now, we might think that in his denials and given everything he's done, so much misunderstanding, so much self-exaltation and confidence, that here Jesus ought to have just given him what for. But here's the surprising scandal of grace over and over again. Jesus looks at us with a heart that is not what we deserve, but overflowing with compassion and mercy. One commentator puts it this way, Peter had not thought about anything but saving his own skin. And if he had reflected for a moment, no doubt he would have found excuses, as we all can do. But when Christ stood there, what had become of the excuses? As by a flash, he saw the ugliness of the deed that he himself had done. There's nothing that brings godly sorrow so surely as a glimpse of Christ's love. And nothing that reveals the love so certainly as that Look, and this commentator says, you may hammer at a man's heart with law and principle and moral duty and the rest of it. And you may get him to feel that he is a very poor creature. But unless the light of Christ's love shines down upon him, there will be no melting into repentance. I know it's a long quote, but it's to say the righteousness of Christ and the holiness of Christ and the splendor of Christ and the mercy of Christ is in that look. I love the way John Gill puts it. John Gill says, It was a look not of wrath and resentment, but of love and mercy and power went along with it. Gill says it was not only a signal to Peter to put in remembrance of what he had said. It was a melting look to him, a means of convincing him and humbling him and bringing him to repentance. And if we would think about this gospel news... That in our failures and in our sins and in our weaknesses and in our shortcomings and all the things that we can add to that list. If we can think about how does Christ see me? And then we think about his look to Peter. and We think about the love and compassion of Christ. And we think about the response that Peter has. What's Peter's response? J.C. Ryle is right. He said this look was a sermon that Peter never forgot. What's Peter's response? In verse 62, he went out and wept bitterly. He broke down and wept, Mark 14 tells you. And I don't think he's weeping for reasons that are more paramount than the glorious, compassionate, merciful Savior who had said to him all those years earlier, lay down your nets and follow me. And Peter has been so confident even earlier that night, I'm coming with you even to death. And then in the courtyard, he's so weak. But Peter's hope is not that Peter is strong. His hope is that Jesus is merciful and that Jesus would turn to him and look 
And in the midst of his own trial, his heart of compassion would be on display. And his love, I think Gil is absolutely right, it's a look not of wrath. Jesus knows Peter. And Jesus has tried to prepare Peter. And the only way Peter's making it through this moment is that Jesus is going to love him through it. Jesus isn't abandoning Peter. Though Peter is faithless, Jesus will be faithful. It's such good news for us. You can lay your head down and wake up in the morning with news like this. You can go through anything with news like this. That the ever-present Christ is full of mercy and faithfulness. Is the news that good? It is that good. And it is that true. Ryle is right. It was a sermon in that look that Peter never forgot. He went out and he wept bitterly. Now it's not said anybody followed him. Where's that guy going? Isn't that the guy with him? Isn't that the guy with the disciples? We don't know what they all thought. It doesn't matter. The narrator isn't concerned with that either. It is concerned with the fact that Peter realizes Jesus' predictions had come true. He is broken over what he has done. He weeps bitterly. And this is different from Judas's response. This is different because both of them had done what was wrong. Both of them had committed sin. One of them had just sinned minutes earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane and now in the high priest's courtyard. Both of them had done what was unworthy to be done of Christ. And Peter goes and weeps bitterly in repentance. Think about the book of Acts where Peter, who is melted here in the Garden of Gethsemane, refuses to deny Christ in the book of Acts. He's melted by the compassion and kindness and look of Jesus. I think Jesus looked at him with love and with welcome. As if Jesus is communicating, remember, Peter, what I said. The rooster just crowed. And remember what I said next. When you turn again, strengthen your brothers. It's a look that brings all of the saying to remembrance. It's a look of love and sustaining grace. It's a look with power. Now, Peter's cracking into a million pieces, but that's not beyond the reach of mercy. Peter's cracking right there and overwhelmed and broken by his sin. But that's exactly what Jesus has come for. This doesn't disqualify Peter. Jesus has come for the broken. He's come for those who recognize their need and see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. If Peter can realize in his weakness and in his failures and in his sin how absolutely destitute spiritually he is and how needful for Christ he is, well then now we're getting somewhere. Now we can celebrate grace. Now we can praise God for salvation. Now we realize it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not of yourselves lest anyone could boast. Now those things are ringing true. Peter wrote a letter, two letters in the New Testament. And I wonder how many times he thought about that moment in Gethsemane when he made those denials and when he thought about that look, when he thought about the brokenness over his sin. So here's what Peter says to his readers, and he's got experience here. He says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. And it's another way of Peter saying, listen, Satan demands to have you all and he wants to sift you like wheat. 
So don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Peter says, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. That's so different from, I don't know him. I'm not with them. I don't know what you're talking about. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Peter knows what it feels like to be in a place where the name of Jesus is mentioned. And he does not want to be associated with that name. That is not Peter's future. That slice of time in Gethsemane, that does not determine Peter's future. You know what Peter needs? The compassionate, merciful look of Christ and to be broken over his sin. Jesus restores him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus brings him back in John 21. A powerful scene. Let the words of the hymn be our closing exhortation tonight. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is what is in the wonderful face of Jesus.